Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our Advent sermon series discussing the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Good morning. This Advent is flying by, isn't it? Luke 2, 10 through 13, which we just read, but I want to read it again. It says this. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there is a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel. When I was a kid, I marveled at this passage. I marveled at at how prophetic it was in the most simple way. Great joy for all the people. And from my very young and perhaps even a bit naive vantage point, that was very true, I thought. I mean, everyone is in a good mood at Christmas, right? Everyone loves Christmas. Everyone is happy at Christmas time. Joy, joy isn't something we reflect on all that often in the Christian church. I feel like it's not like a regular sort of point of emphasis, even though I did mention it a few weeks ago as a key part of Christian witness. But we think about joy a ton specifically. If you, if you celebrate Advent, we dedicate a whole week to it during the Christmas season, during Advent. In fact, go down the street to a Dollar General right here, or any other retail, retailer that sells Christmas decor. If you were looking for something with the word joy on it, there would be no shortage of options. Joy is a big word for one season of the year. We sing of it, joy to the world, right? But while we use wrapping paper with joy emblazoned across it, and we spell it out in bright lights in our front yard, we may not actually feel it. We may not feel joy. We might not be happy. We might not do a lot of smiling this December. My childlike view of Luke 2.10 was a little, just a little bit uninformed. I'll give me a pass. I was like 12. Because actually, a lot of people are still sad or even possibly more sad at Christmas time. People without family, people without money, people without gifts, people without plans, people without children, people without homes. There are a lot of people who are sad at Christmas time. Maybe you're sad at Christmas regularly, or maybe you're sad this Christmas at least. Maybe you relate to Charlie Brown and his famous Christmas special where he says this to his pal Linus. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. 
And then Linus responds ever so kindly, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. Maybe you're giving Charlie Brown a run for his money this holiday season and you actually feel like you're the Charlie Browniest. Finding yourself in a glum, dark place in the middle of what some have billed the most wonderful time of the year. And so when you realize that the third Sunday of Advent is the one where we light the joy candle, there's an instant disconnect for you. You feel like maybe you're being left out this morning. Maybe hope feels safer because you think of hope as like one day, right? We talked about a future hope, something, something out there. But to talk about joy, you think, well, I just don't have that. That's more of like a here and now concept. And maybe you think it's neither here nor now for me. Or even maybe peace is more comfortable for you because you know that, that the peace with God that we have is an objective peace that you don't have to feel for it to be true. You don't have to be alarmed if you don't feel it because this type of peace, it's not emotional. And again, you can look to another age when you will have one day full experiential peace. But joy still feels a little different. It feels like you're kind of on the hook for it now if you're in Christ. But I don't, I don't think that Luke's angels are saying there is good news of great joy that will be for all people and thus joy is for all people. And if you're not experiencing that joy, then there's something seriously wrong with you. I think what the angel and Luke is saying is that there's great news that would if you believed it, leaned into it, centered your life around it, and looked to it for the source of your ultimate joy, that this joy would be the underlying hum of your life, despite the fact that sometimes everything just goes wrong. That this one thing would always be so right in your life that it, in the midst of all the, the heartbreaking wrong that you, would, that you would experience, that you would still have a well of joy that you could go to again and again, and it would never run dry. The angel is telling them and telling us, lift your weary head. Joy is available to you. So the question that we must ask, the only logical question to ask when you hear that is, how do we access this joy? The psalmist, King David, he knew. Psalm 1611 said this, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. The Bible would be actually a really boring book if it just pointed you to like self-actualization and just being true to yourself as the path to life. That's the most common path, I think, today taken for joy, and it never really seems to provide it, at least from my vantage point. People are more sad, more depressed, more anxious than ever, quite possibly. Something isn't working. And David can see it clearly. God has revealed the path of life to him. There are millions of paths that people will tell you lead to life, but they will ultimately just take you off of a cliff. And they're not bad things. They were just never meant to make you feel completely alive. Pete Maravich is one of my all-time favorite athletes who literally never played during my lifetime, strangely enough. Some of you are old enough, though, to remember the pistol and watching him play. Who watched Pete Maravich play during his career that's sitting here this morning? 
Really? None of you? Okay, my mom. That's one. That's one person. Okay. Well, Pete Maravich, if you know anything about him, he died a Christian, but if you've ever heard his story, he shares how he looked everywhere but Jesus for fulfillment up until he responded to God's work, really God's voice in his life. He tells this story. My dad was my best friend, teacher, mentor, and coach. I remember him saying to me, Pete, if you listen to me and work hard, you can get a basketball scholarship. Maybe you will even go to the pros and play on a championship team. You will make a million dollars playing basketball. They will give you a big diamond ring, and you will have your name on it, and it will say world champion. When I was seven, I said, Dad, that's what I want. He said, if you dedicate yourself to basketball, that is all you have to do. And that is what I did. I became a human basketball android. When I was 19, I went to a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting. For three days, I heard who Jesus Christ was, and for three days, I rejected him. I said, you cannot fall for this. They are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. I did not want anything to do with this because I had set my goals. I did not have time for Christ, and I went out into the wilderness for 16 years. I became an All-American basketball player while playing for my dad at LSU. I received many trophies and awards and was on the cover of sports magazines. I had a trophy six foot five inches tall, the same height as I am. It has been in an attic for 15 years collecting dust. I signed the largest contract in sports for $1 million in 1970. I went to my dad and said, I hope you're proud of me. All I need now is the ring. When I get my ring, I will be able to sit by the pool, wiggle my toes in the water, sit back with my drink, and live happily ever after. That was what I thought, but it didn't turn out that way. So Pistol Pete, if you know, he, he never ended up winning a ring. He retired from a team that would end up winning the championship the following year, if I remember correctly, that Celtics team in the early 80s. He was a prodigy, a maverick. He was way ahead of his time. And you can see here that in his life, the things most important to him, for him to achieve, were basketball success, ultimately winning an NBA title, and his father's approval. These are both good things. It's not, they're not sinful, shameful things. It's good to want your dad to think much of you. It's good to want to be successful in your field, giving the best at your job. No shame in that. These are not bad things, but these aren't where joy is found. Instead, you might find a sense of happiness that sticks around just as long as your success sticks around. But then, of course, misery when it comes crashing down and you don't achieve what you wanted to, as was the case for Pete Maravich. And so he continues. On a, night, on a November night in 1982, I sat in my den staring at the television. Around midnight, I turned off the set and quietly slipped to bed. I pondered the impact alcohol had on my life and my family. For hours, I lay awake, tortured by my memories. I had a revelation. I saw all my sin. Then I heard a voice, be strong, lift thine own heart. The words were delivered as loud as thunder. Having experienced a transcendental moment, I prayed for salvation. With tears in my eyes, I said, Jesus, I know you are real because I have tried everything else. When I took God into my heart, it was the first true happiness I ever had. I am saved through the grace of God by Jesus Christ. I want every trophy, trophy and award in my life, and I always wanted more. Jesus Christ was placed on the cross to save us. The thing about Christianity is that it is your choice. You cannot work or earn it or understand it, or you cannot work or earn it, and I understand it now. All of the awards are pale to the glory of God and what the Lord has done in my life. I would not trade my position in Christ for a thousand Hall of Fame rings or a hundred million dollars. There is nothing like the joy 
of Jesus Christ in my life. I know you are real because I've tried everything else. But nothing else delivered the experience he looked for. The results he believed those things promised never came to fruition. And then he says, there's nothing like the joy of Jesus Christ in my life. He looked, he searched, and he searched, and he searched. He had magazine covers and success and the first million-dollar contract. And still, and still, no real joy until he had Jesus. He found out what David knew thousands of years prior. In your presence is abundant joy. And the good news of great joy that is for all who will believe it, and I mean really believe it, is that because of this baby that was born in Bethlehem, we will, in fact, be able to enter God's presence and not be terrified because we know that through Christ, this God can be pleased with sinners like us. That theme keeps reemerging this Advent. God's pleasure with you. You can have God's pleasure. God can be pleased with you. That's where joy is found. If you're looking for it today and coming up empty, how much are you looking for it in God's presence? John, in his biography of Jesus, tells the story of, of Jesus who's about to be crucified, and he's in the upper room with his disciples. And Jesus has a lot of stuff to say to them. He clearly believes to be very, very important. These are like his parting comments with them. And among these things is John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my, vo- my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as, the, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy, it might be complete. You want complete joy? Well, it's connected to these things that Jesus said. That's why he said them. Now, Jesus said a lot of things prior in this discourse. All of, all of John 14 uh, is included, but I think he may be talking about when he said these things I have said, I think he may be talking about what he just said here, the things immediately preceding. It might mean more than that, but it definitely does not mean less, Okay. The thing he said immediately before verse 11 is quite obviously included, if not the whole of what he's referring to. So where does joy come from? How do we take hold of it? How do we access it? We've tried everything else and nothing satisfies. So then where do we go? I think the plain reading would tell us to go here to this statement. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How has the Father loved Jesus? Flawlessly perfectly, without a question. How, how a father dotes over a child, but imagine this, a child that has never done anything wrong. 
See, I cannot possibly love my son more than I do. I don't have the capacity to love him more than that. I am full of love for him. And sometimes he throws some food around or he kind of like yells at me or disobeys something I say in like the small ways a two-year-old can, right? And he could not make me any happier than he does. My heart could burst. It's so full of love for him. I love my daughter like this too, by the way, but she's a little too young to like tell me no or disobey me or anything, so it doesn't quite make the same point here. But my son, I love him fully, and I love him completely. How does God love Jesus? Well, God is a better father than I am. Jesus is the perfect son. And so it's safe to say that God loves Jesus more than I love my son, which is unfathomable to me. That's how Jesus loves his own. That's how Jesus loves you this morning. So then, how do you have joy? Abide in my love. One pastor who I heard teach on this passage for hours and hours defined abide as remain close to God's heart of love for you. Joy comes from how close you position yourself to God's heart of love for you. Yes, he loves you, but do you soak in that love? Do you bathe yourself in that love? Do you let the love of God wash over you daily, hourly, moment by moment even? Or do you say, God loves me, that's nice, now I need to go find something more. And you might not say it, but do you do that? Do you live that out? I honestly don't know if you know what it means for God to love you if you think there's something more you need. Have you really known and experienced his love? Have you abided in it? Have you remained close to God's heart of love for you? Has that been the guiding reality of your life? Then he says, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. Not, I will love you if you do what I ask, but rather, as you do what I ask, that will be a way for you to stay relationally close to my heart. If I don't do the things my wife once she doesn't stop loving me I, I don't hope but she might say she feels like we've been off or we've been we've been distant she loves me but i'm not close to her heart the best moments of in our relationship come when i'm close to her heart that already loves me not because she loves me more but because i'm operating in that space where her love is really real for me where i can experience it where i can know it the prodigal son in jesus's famous parable he never stopped being loved by his father in that story. But he wasn't experiencing the father's love when he was off living in rebellion. His father's love wasn't known to him at that time. You can tell because he assumes he's going to have to grovel at his father's feet when he comes back. You don't earn love by doing God's will, but you do experience that love when you walk in his ways. That, that is how you abide. That's how you know in the deepest recesses of your own heart that Jesus loves you the way the Father loves Jesus. And when that love becomes tangible to you in that way, you can have joy. I hope you believe that this morning. I hope you've been reminded of something that you already know to be true. I hope you'll lean into that this holiday season. But you might be sitting here saying, Joe, you don't understand. I am having a really bad year. I'm having a really bad December. I am really hurting. I don't think it's even within me to imagine a world where there's joy for me. And if that's you, please know I hear that and I understand. 
More than that, God understands. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith, it produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. James says, consider it pure joy. He's talking about a framing of your circumstances here. Understand it to be pure joy. It won't seem like pure joy or happiness or euphoria when it happens. You won't experience a trial in this life and instantly be like, ah, that's nice. No, that's not how we relate to trials. That's not how we relate to bad things happening. That's not how those things feel because trials are actually trials. They are bad things. If they were good things, he wouldn't call them trials. He would call them something else. I don't know, like blessings maybe. But instead, consider it pure joy when you experience trials. And later in this letter in James 5, uh, and remember these chapters, they're, they're just... Uh, part of this letter. It's not a book. So this is like in the same stream of thought, in the same letter to the same people. He says this, you also be patient and strengthen your hearts for the Lord's return is near. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge stands before the gates. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name. Think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance, and you have seen the Lord's purpose, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He mentions the prophets. They were killed, persecuted. They had some trials. But then he mentions Job. What did Job suffer? What were his trials? Job 1, 13 through 18 tells us, One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them. I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking, and yet another came and reported. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking. I know this doesn't seem real. When another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. What you're going through this holiday season hopefully isn't as bad as that. And I can't imagine that it's worse than that. And at the, at the same time, trials and suffering are not some sort of contest to see who has it worse. Suffering is suffering. I'm talking about joy today. I will have lunch with you all as we celebrate Advent. And then I'm going to go perform a funeral for a family that lost their first baby, a four-week-old. They only had a month with her before she suddenly passed away. Suffering, trials. I cannot imagine the agony of losing one of my children. It's unthinkable. How can we have joy? How can that family have joy? After the passage we just read in Job, the chapter ends with this. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Job laments, tears his robe, shaves his head. I'm not mourning, this is just how I am. These are the signs of mourning in this culture. And then he worships God, and and it says he didn't sin or blame God. He remained close to God's heart of love for him. And was it good? Was the circumstance of his life good? Did he smile when these things happened in the first chapter of Job? No, he deeply, deeply mourned these things. But James refers to that story in a letter in which he has to tell people, people who would be persecuted, to consider it all joy when you face trials. This isn't a turn that frown upside down or look on the bright side sort of remark. Perhaps he means, perhaps he means, consider it an opportunity to abide, to press in, to draw near to God the way you do a good parent when something is hurting you. And in that you will gain endurance. And when endurance has its full effect, you will be mature and complete. The worst things that happen to you are actually awful. But you can both consider them pure joy because in them you have an opportunity for new levels of intimacy with Jesus, even though the circumstances, again, are terrible. And you can find joy, I have to believe, in abiding in Jesus during them. This is Christian joy. It's a joy that is not the mere product of good things happening, but in the good news of great joy that can be for any person that Jesus Christ was born to a virgin, that he lived a stunningly blameless life, that he died on a cross for the sins of the world, that he was resurrected again in three days. That news is enough. That truth is enough. Jesus is enough. Abide in him and your joy will be complete, even when, maybe especially when, things aren't as you want them to be. Michelle, you can come up. Cyprian, one of the ancient followers of Jesus, said this in a letter to his friend in the third century as he awaited his death. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found joy, a joy, which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them. You see, this joy in Jesus isn't just talk. When you get it, when you take hold of it, it can sustain you in the hardest times. You see, Cyprian was imprisoned in September of 258, at the order of Galerius Maximus. And on the next day, he was publicly examined by him, and they had this interaction. Galerius Maximus said, Are you Thasius Cyprianus? Cyprian said, I am. And then he said, "The The most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. Cyprian answered, I refuse. Galerius said, take heed for yourself. And Cyprian said, do as you are bid. In so clear a case, I may not take heed. Galerius, after briefly conferring with his judicial counsel, with much reluctance pronounced the following sentence. 
you have long lived an irreligious life and have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association and professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome and the pious, most sacred of august emperors have endeavored in vain to bring you back to conformity with their religious observances. Whereas, therefore, you have been apprehended as principal and ringleader in these infamous crimes, you shall be made an example to those to whom you who have wickedly associated with you. The authority of law shall be ratified in your blood." He then read the sentence of the court from a written tablet. It is the sentence of this court that Thasius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian responded, thanks be to God. Do you have that kind of joy this morning? I believe it's available to you. It's available today as we remember Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup again, giving thanks. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We take communion here every week at the table by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, and remembering that Jesus gave his life for ours. Communion can be found in the back left And gluten-free communion can be found in the back on the right side, my right side. My friends Randy and Rachel are available to pray for you this morning, and they'll be available on either side of the room. If you have heard this message and you just say, yeah, I just not experiencing the joy of the Lord this season. In fact, I'm going through some hard times and like I would like to be able to consider it all joy, but I am in a dark place. They would love to put a hand on your shoulder and come alongside you in prayer. And I would urge you to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us in a moment and you're going to be able to sit and spend some time with the Lord if you need to. Ask for prayer if you need to. And then when you're ready, you can stand up and take communion at your own pace. Father, there is a joy that is accessible, that is on offer from you, and I thank you for it. It's for all the people, anyone, anyone who believes can experience it. God, would you give us that joy this holiday season? Would you help us to abide, to draw close to your heart of love for us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.